Welcome to the Building Texas Business Podcast. Interviews with thought leaders and organizational visionaries from across industry. Join us as we talk about the latest trends, challenges, and growth opportunities to take your business to the next level. The Building Texas Business Podcast is brought to you by Boyer Miller, providing counsel beyond expectations. Find out how we can make a meaningful difference to your business at BoyerMiller.com. And by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Discover more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, Chris Hanslick. In today's episode, you will meet Eddie Martin, president and CEO of Tilson Homes. Tilson is one of the oldest family-owned and operated home builders in Texas, celebrating its 90th anniversary this year. Eddie, thanks for being here today with me and appreciate you taking the time. I can't wait to hear more about you and Tilson Homes. Oh, I can't wait to tell it. Okay. Let's start right there. So you're the president and CEO of Tilson Homes. Tell the listeners what Tilson Homes is. What is it known for as a company? So Tilson Homes is a home builder. We're a residential home builder. Our specialty and what we not only are we known for, but the only thing we do is build on people's property. Okay. In most people's property, because inner cities properties are expensive, is out in unincorporated areas. So about 90% of our homes that we build are in unincorporated areas on acreage. So it may be an acre, it could be two acres. We build on 1,000 acre farms. You know, we do a lot of, our houses are normally in the, about three hundred, four hundred thousand dollar range. Okay. So we do a lot of ranch foreman houses. You know, for okay. the, you know, the big ranches where they have the ten thousand square foot homes, we do the two thousand square foot ranch foreman's home, and we do a lot of that. We do a lot of, especially in the in hill country and north of Houston, there are these residential acreage subdivisions that will be two to five acres. Sure. We do a lot of those kind of homes, you know, and we have what the way we do it is we have 12 model home parks that are scattered throughout Texas. uh, And we drive traffic to there. We have 40 models, I'm excuse me, plans. And then we, each plan has custom options, has different elevations, then we'll customize them for a customer. They give us a deposit, and then we go off and build the house on their property with our money. Okay. And so we don't use any, we don't require them to get any construction financing, which is another thing that we're known for, and that's very rare. But we do help them. It's kind of like a package. We help them to get everything they need to move in the house, including the permanent mortgage. So we have a couple of, Companies that are mortgage companies that specialize in build on your lot rural mortgages because it's a different kind of business in the mortgage side of it too. Okay, and a lot of our build, uh, a lot of our homeowners actually live on the property, so we have a lot of homeowners that will literally tell us we're going to watch every nail that goes into this house, and they literally do. <laughs> you can drive up on a piece of property, and they'll be. Two, two chairs and a table and an umbrella, and they'll be sitting there. Direct supervision. Huh? Every, a lot. So it sounds kind of highly specialized, but carved out a, a niche in the market to really kind of 
be the go-to for that. Right. So, like, most of our competition are local builders that may build three or four, five houses a year. There are a number of, there's probably a good five or six statewide type builders like us that do kind of the same thing. But that, you know, our, again, claim to fame is what we call our easy finance program, which is we, you give us a deposit, like $1,500, and we'll build your house with our funds because we've been in business for 90 years. I was, I was, that's a good segue because y'all are celebrating the 90th anniversary of the company, correct? This year, yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, I know, you know from our discussions and looking at your website, one of the unique things about Tilson is it's a family-owned and operated Operate. company. Can you tell us a little more about the history of the company just to get a, give us a little context for that? Yeah. So the company was started by my father-in-law's uncle's. And they were in the rig building business, oil rig building. And they went all over Mexico, New Mexico, and Texas building rigs when rigs were built out of wood. And when they started fabricating them out of metal, their jobs went away. And so they moved here to Houston and worked for Jesse Jones in his lumber yard when he had one and did odd jobs. And Jesse found out that they were really good at framing, and Judge Roy Hoffines asked him to build the KPRC tower, but nobody knew how to do it, but the Tilson brothers, Horse and Jack. And so they built the KPRC, first KPRC tower, like a derrick. Yeah, how about that? Yeah, and so as they got more and more of those kind of jobs, you know, they went out on their own form. Tilson Construction, this is prior to 32, and then in 32, they they started Tilson Home, Custom Home, I think is what they called it at the time, and they did that. Not much is known during that 1932 to 44, but in 44, when people started coming home from the war, there was a ton of demand for housing, and that's when they really started building housing totally. And in 50, about 55, my father-in-law became a framer for him. He framed houses, ended up running their construction department. And in 1960, he bought out Horace Tilson's 50% share and made a deal with Jack Tilson, who was a horrible businessman, according to legend, <laughs> and, and told Jack Tilson to go to his farm in Louisiana and do chickens and Jack Allred, his name's Jack Tilson Allred, would run the company and send him his 50% share of the profits. And okay. so, uh, so Jack, with his brother-in-law, started the company, start, reconfigured the company into the way it's structured now and started, you know, started doing his leadership with his bro- brother-in-law and they, you know, were building two and 300 houses every year for, from then until 91 when I came in and took over as president in 93. Okay. Great. So uh, what are some of the challenges that you would 
tell people if you're involved in a family business, what are some of the challenges that you would tell people to look out for? So it, it, the, the thing about a family business, when it's really a family business, is it's, the family's ever-changing. So you have, you know, like when I first started, I had a father-in-law, a brother-in-law, two brother-in-laws, and a wife. And, you know, the wife has a child, my child, Brandon, and she quits and to raise him. And so without her there, you know, the dynamics of the two brothers kind of change. And also at that time, my father-in-law kind of started backing away from the business too. So your dynamics of the people that are running the company change like constantly and you're having to you're having to kind of navigate their different the way my brother-in-law acted or my two brother-in-laws acted with their dad there is different when they're acting with me alone and he's not president anymore yeah so you know the when I became president the dynamics of the brother-in-laws because you know it was me coming in for a couple of years and they worked there all their lives. And then I become president, you know, that was, and Jack stepped away. I mean, literally stepped away and quit coming to work. So I had to, you know, they, that, when that year happened, the dynamics changed and I had to navigate between that. Yeah. That'd be a challenging time for you as the new leader of the organization. Yes, yeah. it was. And the other thing is that not only is Tilson a family-owned company, it has several families in it. So on the on on our executive team, there was so my brother-in-law, there was a man named Jimmy Caldwell, whose dad was the senior vice president before, you know, before him. So there was, so his family, his grandfather worked for the Tilsons, his father worked for my father-in-law, and then he was there. And then, you know, so he had been there for 20 years working since mm. he was, he was almost 40 and he worked at right out of University of Texas. And so his, so he was kind of part of the family. His family was working there all the time. So he was part of the family too. So I came into that. He was on the board of directors, so he also didn't get the presidency, and he had been a builder and all that kind of stuff. And 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 but I think the reason why I was elected, and they all elected me, was that they were all builders and had been builders at the company. I was the only CPA lawyer, you know. And so it's like, well, we're all kind of the same, and he's different. <laughs> so that was kind of you know, yeah, different, you know. It makes sense. What were some of the things you did then to start maybe, I don't know if it was building the culture or maybe changing the culture within the organization so that everyone knew or was reminded we're on the same team, trying to achieve the same goals and dealing with that kind of dynamic. So one of the things you can't do when you come into a company like that, in my mind, is you can't, you certainly can't dictate things. Right. First of all, I didn't have the knowledge base for how to build a house or even how to even sell a house. 
So I have to convince people that I'm on your side. I just want, I want, I just want to help you, you know, and I, I'm not here to, you know, make ways. I'm here to make your life easier. And so I try very hard, even today, to just talk to people, try to listen to them about what they're really trying to achieve, ask questions. And, and if I can help them, I will help them. And if I can't, I'll just ask more questions so that they can be thinking them what they should be thinking about in solving a problem. If it's especially if it's a problem like yesterday, we were on a job site with my senior vice president of construction and we had a problem and I just kept asking him questions. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's it. And he figured it out himself, you know, and I didn't have to, you know, dictate anything or order anything. And which I don't it's just not in my nature in the first place. But I think it works really well in this kind of situation where especially when I earlier in my career at Tilson, when I didn't really know too much about how it worked. I mean, I knew how to do the accounting and I knew the legal issues and all that kind of stuff. But nobody in the company did that because that was all kind of, it was all farmed out. All the accounting was all done by a CPA. You know, they, we wrote the checks and we sent them all to a CPA and he did the financials. So we had no in, internal accounting department. We had no internal legal department or anybody. We just called the lawyer that we used uh, that Jack asked. And so I brought that to the table, but nobody ever used it because they weren't used to it. And it just, you know, okay. I just brought kind of brought it in as I could. So when you think about your leadership style and how it was when you started back in 93, 94 yeah. and how it's evolved, how would you describe that leadership style? Well, it's, it evolved because again, we're talking about a family company, the members of the family who all the members of the family who and Jimmy Caldwell that were on the board or on the executive management team that were there when I came have either retired or passed. All their sons are working for us, including my own son. And they all grew up in the business too, except for my son. My son is our CFO because he went, he got an accounting degree kind of like me and he worked, you know, at Eckert's, but the other son, the other two sons who are my nephews, they worked at Tilson doing framing, doing warranty work, working in the sales parks. So they're, you know, one of them, it knows construction really well. The other one knows how to sell, you know, residential homes our way. Right. And he's our, you know, he runs our sales and the other one runs our cost management group. And so again, they have an expertise that I don't have. Even today, I mean, I know a lot about it, sure, but I don't have that minute detail how to talk to a customer to get him to come and put his name on the bottom line. So again, I can't dictate to him, you know, what he needs to be doing to sell, and or to get people in to set, you know, to sell them my house. So again, what I do is try to bring them along by questioning and listening to them about what their problems are and how we can figure out a solution to that problem. 
And so it's to a, a real degree, it's the same mentality, which again, fits my personality, I think. Okay. When you think about things that Tilson has done under your leadership, what are some of the things that you would describe as being innovative for your industry? Innovative for our industry. Well, again, the, and I didn't do this, but our easy buy program, which is, is a financing technique, is there are builders who have done it, but they haven't done it to the extent that we can do it. That's basically building the house. So the customer only puts a very small amount, $1,500, basically a deposit down. Then we build the entire house without them having to get a construction loan. And then we have already procured for, for them or helped them procure a permanent loan that we would close into and that's how we get paid okay and so that's kind of one thing that we've done we we've created a a, an ability because of we we build in over 100 counties we have we created we didn't have this before me a county-based pricing system for every house that we sell or custom option. And so what we can do is you tell me where your land is, what county your land is, I can give you a price up front other than if your house is on an unlevel piece of property, I can give you a price for that house. And within a week, I can send someone out there, shoot grades on it and tell you what kind of foundation you're going to need. And you know the price of the house. And we stick to that. Wow. That is, it sounds unique because you give you, so you're giving your customers a lot of certainty up front. Right. Exactly. Unless they make a change, obviously. But yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it hurts sometimes when like lumber triples, but uh, we've stuck to that, you know? So that's, that's a good point. Let's talk, I mean, obviously the last couple of years have been, you know, kind of crazy on a number of levels. Certainly to keep up in the news, the construction industry has had some difficulties because of things like the price of lumber just going through the roof, concrete and other things. What are you and your team doing to combat that, you know, account for it, hedge for it? You know, what are some of the things you're trying to do to, you know, survive through it? Yeah. So, so one of the things we stay really on top of cost and we have major relationships with some very large vendors also, our main vendor is McCoy's Building Supply that started in Galveston 95 years ago. And they're a family-owned and operated business, too. They have, I think, 80 stores around Texas. Their footprint is about where our footprint is. And we were the first builder that kind of came to them and said, will you supply us? And they started with supplying us with framing and materials and what they would do is they would they weren't used to this but they we would send them an invoice i mean a po for a particular house tell them where the house is they would look to see where the house is figure out their closest store send that po to that store and the store would cut cut the po so we did that with lumber as we our relationship grew and they started learning about us and we started learning about them we went to shingles, we went to trim, doors, windows. Uh, so they provide quite a few of our things. And in that relationship, and they just, they're 
fourth generation, I think their fourth generation president and CEO just retired last month and their fifth generation just started. She's just a great person. Uh, But we have this relationship. So for instance, when lumber was going up, if it would go, and I don't know exactly what their pricing was, right? but let's say if it went up in a month, we do monthly pricing. If it went up, you know, a month in one month, 6%, they might only charge us a, a four, a three or 4% increase instead of the six. Okay. And then on the way down, back down, it'd be the other way around. Okay. And so we kind of partner where they take part of the increase and we'd take the other part, and then we'd pay on the other side, we'd take more of the decrease, and they would take less of the decrease, and we would partner, and that would soften the blow of increases. Well, that's a, you know, to me, it's a great lesson in the value of partnering Partner, with, yes. with your vendors. Yes. Because you're all going to fall on hard times, so if you stick together, <laughs> they'll be there to help you, and you'll be, you know, reciprocate when it's your turn. Yeah. Well, my father-in-law used to famously say that when you're, 50 miles from home, you need a friend, not a contractor. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's the other thing is, you know, our contractors, you know, they're, you know, they're saying, you know, we need increases and we say lumber's too high. We can't increase it. Can you wait? And they would wait. Okay. And so, but we have those kind of relationships, not just with McCoy's, but with electricians and HVAC companies and just you know, a large number of the, uh, a large number of the subcontractors and vendors because, because we can c- provide them with constant work and they don't have to, you know, they're, and we, we do a, 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 almost what we call an instant pay where whenever they finish the job, our superintendent will, has a iPad that he presses a button and says, this job's finished. And we'll pay them within three days. And most other builders, it's a two-week thing. Right. And well, so that I'm sure that gets positive reviews from the customers. <laughs> it, it helps. Again, yeah. it helps. Uh, so let's talk a little more about inside the business of Tilson. The, go, looking at your employees, you're hiring, you're firing, starting with the hiring process, you know, what processes do you have in place to kind of adequately or make sure you're doing your best to screen applicants and decide on whether to make offers or not or not? And then what do you do once they're there to integrate them? Yeah. So we kind of do it two ways. We have a really good HR department. We have a, a HR person that all she does is screen customers. And she's got a list, depending on the department, because there's so many different kinds of things that we have to do. Um, so our drafting person is totally different. There's a big skill set on drafting is totally different than an estimator who's totally different than a builder who's totally different than a salesperson, right? And then you have your normal, you know, accounting administrator type people. So our managers have pretty extensive job description list depending on the level that they're using and we have a very regimented for instance in construction we have a very regimented construction job description for each level of person we're trying to hire so sometimes we like to hire not sometimes 
we really like to hire new people who haven't been working for other builders. Okay. And the reason why is most of the builders are production builders. And production builders, you know, I love them to death. You know, I was the president of Texas Builders Association and the Houston Builders Association. And they're key to our industry in making things work. But they build homes one after another. We build homes, one here, one 30 miles from there, another 35 miles. And so our guys are traveling 300 miles a day, every day. To make my gosh, to make their jobs, yeah. they, we try. We you know they we we want them to be carrying fifteen to eighteen jobs. We want them to make seven of those jobs to eight of those jobs a day, and then the other eight the next day. But we want them to do it every other day, so they can you know keep up with what's going on. A production builder who's not used to driving three hundred miles a day doesn't always work out very well. Just because he's never done it before. Well, I, I assume that helps the hiring process because you know the questions to ask. Yes. To get the right answers or, right. or hopefully the honest answers and make decisions on whether the candidate can do the job. And that's exactly right. And that's where the screening starts. So like in construction, we have an extensive screening checklist from the H, that the HR will talk to the candidate and, and then she will pass on. You know, because we want we want to know a, a number of things. One, would they be the kind of person that could do that? Because it does take, like, you know, if you have back problems or things like that, you know, you can make adjustments, but, you know, with the seats and stuff like that, but it can be hard on you. But so we want to know if they're the kind of person that be, would be willing to do that. And we also need to know what their skill set is, because, again, in the production world, you might be called a builder, but really what you are, are is the person who's going out to say, yes, the frame's done. The project manager can now come check it to make sure it's done right. Okay. You know, and yeah. so he's sitting in the field. We can't use that person. We need a person who already, who's the production manager who can look at a frame or, you know, a, a trim job or a shingle job and tell that it's done according to code in the right way and it's done economically. And so we need someone a little, a lot more skilled at that than a normal production builder who has been, you know, if you've been a production builder for three to five years, you can't work for us. That you really, you can be trained, but he's already been trained in a way that, you know, we might as well get someone who's coming out of college, who's never done it, that we can train them as a you know a, a a level one builder and we'll train him so that he'll go around with our regional construction manager and we will train him you know on a hands-on way and usually what we'll do is that regional construction manager will spend six months in a in the truck with this with the builder then we'll give him his own truck and he'll help those whatever jobs he's working on and he'll go in and kind of start looking at these jobs and telling the regional construction manager, you know, what, you know, what he's seeing on job sites. And the regional construction manager will then go check that. And then we have a checklist on kind of like a test, if you will, to say this level one builder 
has now learned the skills of a level two builder. Okay. And so now you're a level two builder. Now you're making your own jobs on your own. And then our regional construction manager will check it. Instead of checking it every week or twice a week, he'll check his jobs once a month. And then when you get to a level three, the regional construction manager doesn't need to check it, but every once in a while. Okay. Because you, you know what you're doing. And you've been with this for probably four years by then. Right. Gain some trust and yeah. knowledge. Yeah. So lots being discussed everywhere about hybrid work remote. Seems pretty clear to me and evident that a large portion of your workforce can't work remote because they got to build a house. They got to build out. Uh, so how are you handling that? Because I also assume there are some functions maybe where hybrid work is can is feasible. So, yeah. So, so, so how are you addressing that and, it's, you know, and the split between the two? Yeah. So, yes, the field personnel, they got to be in the field. You know, the warranty guys, they're going to fix houses. The builders are building houses. The sales staff are in the sales locations. They have to be in the sales locations. We did, you know, residential construction. We got designated as an essential industry so we could stay. We worked all during COVID and we sent everybody home that were mm-hmm. administrative. So all the administrative people, the drafting people, the estimators, uh, it's all electronic. It's all in computers. They all can work from home. The accounting department can work from home except for, you know, two people you know, who are getting invoices, the invoices in the office, they, we had two people in the office, they would scan the invoices, send them to the accounting people who were working from home. We're still doing that actually right now. And we had, we need office, at least one officer in the office who signs mechanic liens so we can get them recorded. So taking a practical approach, it sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that we heard from our staff, from the administrative staff that are getting paid uh, either hourly or salary is, you know, in Houston, that's saving two hours. Sure. Right? You know. And these days, a lot of money on gas. A lot of money on gas. Yeah. And they're in, and they're, uh, you know, we do, we have a surveying system that we survey our employees on about every two months or so. And we do a six month survey. We do, you know, a six month and one year survey. And then we do a, if someone leaves, we do a, a, you know, a termination survey. We don't call it, I don't think we call it a termination survey, but it's a, you know, whether we fire them or they leave, we ask them to do a survey and we get good response Mm -hmm. because this company helps us do it. And, but Getting those surveys about this COVID and working from home is, you know, there are a lot of people that were basically say, especially on these six month and one year surveys, we wouldn't be working at Tilson if they wouldn't allow us to do this. Hey, yeah, I, I don't think you're alone in that. Yeah. And, I, you know, it looks like that, you know, the hybrid model is going to be around. I think so. You not, know, not going anywhere anytime soon for no. sure. And they, you know, I've read and I read a lot of articles and Harvard Business Journal and other uh, journals like that. I mean, I actually take that. So I, mm. there were a whole bunch of articles, and and I did some research on it. And there was it wasn't in the Harvard one. I can't remember what, what article it was, but it was a lady out of California who specializes 
before COVID in, you know, these hybrid type deals. And she said that companies are moving to this anyway. They were moving to this hybrid working environment anyway. And COVID just accelerated it. Exactly. And that the, the people that are trying to get it back to all office, no hybrid, are the people that are going to be missing the boat. I, I think that's right. I think, you know, you change as a company, you have to change and evolve with the times. So, okay, so you got kind of a good, sounds like a good mix of the hybrid work. It's working for your workforce. What about, you, you've been in, what, almost 30 years now, the 30 years. The president. This year. And, uh, not, yeah, not as president. 30 years as an employee. Okay. Uh, last when, year. when you think about, you know, your career at Tilson, are there any failures or setbacks that you've encountered? If so, what were they? And how did you respond? How did it make you better? How did it make the company yeah. better? So, what was the learning? So the biggest problem that we have experienced is outselling our capacity. That's a good problem. It, is okay, good, it sounds it, like a good problem. It, it sounds like a good problem. <laughs> But when you, and when you do it incrementally, so it's, you know, you outsell, you know, let's say just to throw out numbers, let's say you normally sell 30 houses a month and you start selling 35 houses a month. That's kind of an incremental problem. And you kind of blow it off because you're like, oh, that's really good. And exceeded you know, your goal. Yeah, yeah, this is all good, you know, and then you throw it to construction and they're not, they can't handle 35 houses. They can only handle 30. But, you know, it takes an extra 30 days. It's not that big a deal. And you kind of blow it off and you don't really yeah. think about it. When you sell, when you were, if you're selling, let's say, 40 houses or 45 houses, and now you're selling 100 houses, and you sell 100 houses one, one month, which we've done. Uh, you know, in the past before COVID and we're like, eh, well, that's okay. Cause the next month we sold 45. Oh, that's good. We just had a kind of a blip. We had yeah. a price increase. Everybody came in, bought the house before the price right. increase. Averaged out. Okay. And, and they went out and averaged out. Okay. So you're thinking, okay, well, I, I sold a hundred in June. Okay. Well, it'll probably go down. Oh, then you sell 120 in July and then you sell 150 in August. And then you sell another hundred and then another hundred and another hundred. And you were only building 35. That's a problem. That's a problem. Yeah. It's angry customers, I would bet. You can manage expectations, especially during this COVID. And, and, uh, and we've done a really good job. We do a, a, every Tuesday at two, we do a, a a Facebook live where we say, ask us any questions, and my nephews and our marketing director ask these questions, or answers all these questions, and and if there's a real problem, they don't bring it up, but they call them back later. That helps manage expectations. Yeah. If we're making sure our our customers know that what they're getting into, we're saying, okay, it's taking 18 months to from start to finish now, it's not, you know, it's not a eight month period wow. anymore, but it's, but, and part of the problem is that in the news is you've got the supply chain problems, sure, which is big in the construction industry. 
and they hear about the labor shortages. And so they understand all that to a certain degree. But yeah, there is a problem there. And the other thing is, in our business, because it's built on your lot and we're building on a person's property, they have to do a lot of work too. And so we have to wait on them a lot of times. And so okay. you're asking uh, about how we kind of manage pricing and I didn't completely an- finish answering, but we have in our contract what we call a price protection. So if you do all that you have to do, and we got a list of it on this price protection document, that if you get all that done within 180 days, your price is locked in. If you don't, we're going to raise your price six and a half percent. Okay. And if you don't miss, and then if you don't get it all done the next 60 days, we're going to raise it another 3%. And if you don't get it done the next 60 days, we're going to terminate your contract. And that's one of the ways yeah. we... Yeah, some built-in protection. Yeah. And incentive for the the home or yeah. the landowner, going to be a homeowner, customer, I guess, to yeah. do what they're supposed to do. Right. And they have the ability to pay us to go do it because we have, we have what we call... A prof- Professional property services, which is our kind of development thing, we do the septic and the road and the well and okay. you know and the clearing and all that kind of stuff. We can price that into the house too. People who are coming from the suburbs like that because they don't know the road guy and they don't know the septic guy and they don't know the well guy. But people who already live out in Willis or you know past Conroe or Madisonville or wherever, you know, if you're going up I forty five. And they've been living there for 10, 15 years. They know all those guys and they can get that done. Right. Faster than we can usually. That makes sense. The, uh, so let's turn to the lighter side of things. Where are you originally from? Where'd you grow up? Well, I grew up in Houston. I was born in Pecos. Okay. Lived about eight years in Lubbock. Six months in Corpus Christi, then back to Lubbock. And then we moved to Houston. My dad had, we figured... 22 different distinct jobs huh. went broke 22 times hmm. and we moved so we moved around never went bankrupt but he went broke okay uh, but we we settled here when i was in third grade in houston i went to springwoods high school and then northbrook high school when they built it in spring branch and and did a lot of the buildings around here i did the u of h air conditioning did the hvac a lot of commercial buildings in Houston that I like to point out. Yeah. Well, it's kind of neat to drive around and be able to point to those things, yeah, right? Yeah. And I do that. Yeah. <laughs> People get tired of it. But, what, uh, so, yeah. so clearly have a hard or mentality for hard work and ethic for hard work. What was your first job, though, growing up? My first job was mechanical contracting. Okay. So I did the actual first job I did, I was hired by a mechanical contractor company who was friends. I didn't know this at the time, but he was best friends with my wife's dad. Okay. So my, my father-in-law, they lived two, two streets apart and he lived on Tilson Way, which was the subdivision that the Tilson brothers built back in the 50s that my father-in-law and my wife was born in. And actually, my son was born in the same house. And this man lived one street over on Tilson Way. But he hired me. We went to church together when I was 15. And he put me in his shop to build 
him an office. And so I built him an, two offices, air conditioning, wired it, did all that kind of stuff with his direction because I was 15. And, uh, and the next year I started fabricating sheet metal duct work, which is what is in most buildings, either the sheet metal or duct board. Sure. And from there, you know, that was 15, so 16. And I did that all the way until I was a junior in college. Okay. And I was and by the time I was 18, I was running my own crew. I had six guys that I ran that were all older than me. <laughs> That's a good story. The uh, All right, so we're a Texas-based podcast, so I ask all my guests, Tex-Mex or barbecue? All right. Franklin's Barbecue. Franklin's Barbecue. In Austin, Texas, on East 11th. I've been there. You, you, I guess you go there enough where you don't have to wait in line, or you always have to wait in line? No, you, don't, you know what we do? We do we do the, uh, now you can go, e- you email, or you go online, and you if, as long as you buy, I think it's five pounds, you get a slot. You tell them what time you want to be there, and you go there at that time, and they point you to the parking lot, and they are, it's numbered, and you go to that number, and within 20 minutes, they'll they chop it up and bring it out to you and put it in your car. How about that? And you head out. There you go, everybody. There's a pros tip if you want to go to Franklin's. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let me ask you, though, if, if, so if you could take a 30-day sabbatical, where would you go? What would you do? Oh, uh, we went to so our 40th wedding anniversary was in 2019 we spent three weeks headed to and on the way back from south africa oh wow so we spent a week in london to kind of acclimate ourselves to the time change because there's only a one hour difference then we flew to south africa did a safari and so i would tell you that would have been it because that was my wife's deal we did the safari we did the winelands we went to south to cape horn and that would have been it. Now our big sabbatical is going to either Norway, Sweden, Finland, or Iceland to see the Northern Lights. Okay, all take, great options. Yeah, and take it. I mean, we've been to we've been to Norway and Sweden. We've never been to Finland, but there's a neat place near the border of Russia that is that kind of caters to you know these kind of trips. And I'd like to go there, but, you know, with the war going on, Brenda's like, yeah. no way. A little too close to Russia. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, Eddie, I want to thank you for taking the time to come be on the podcast to, to share the story, not only your story, but the story of Tilson Home. So Thank you. I appreciate it. It's nice meeting you. Likewise, and I know our listeners will enjoy it as well. So take care. Good. Thanks. And there we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at BoyerMiller.com forward slash podcast. And you can find out more about all the ways our firm can help you at BoyerMiller.com. That's it for this episode. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.